welcome to the Free Cities podcast. My name is Timothy Allen, and this is the official podcast of the Free Cities Foundation. Hello, and welcome to episode number 32 of the Free Cities podcast. Well, we are back in Montenegro again this week with a conversation I recorded at the so-called pop-up city of Zuzalu. I'm talking with a gentleman who has very deep ties to the Free Cities movement, working as he does in the economic development space. His name is Andreas Baumgartner, and he has spent the last quarter century working in the political and legal side of the space, with the likes of Metis Institute, Tipolis, and Praxis, to name but a few. Andreas has a wealth of practical knowledge on the nuts and bolts of actually negotiating with governments during the establishment and running of special economic zones and semi-autonomous jurisdictions, which is somewhat of a rare occurrence in my experience due to the emerging nature of the whole free cities ecosystem. In our conversation, he is keen to emphasize the importance of trying to work with host governments and highlights the strategies he has learned to employ when approaching them, as well as commenting on the current limitations faced by the movement with particular regards to the process of incentivizing different demographics to move to new jurisdictions. Now, I found this a fascinating and informative discussion. The first of many, I hope, as this movement continues to evolve. Andreas doesn't just talk the talk, he very much walks the walk too. And I appreciate that about him very much. So, it just leaves for me to say to you as always, please sit back, relax and enjoy my conversation with Andreas Baumgartner. Sure. Give me the 101 of what, what you do. And what you yeah, so name, my name is Andreas Baumgartner and I have been at the economic development space at this overlap between business, politics and law for basically 25 years now. And what I'm really fascinated about is how you can achieve large scale impact, social development, economic development, and in a way also political element. And it's this passion that has taken me initially into the public-private partnership space. It then has taken me into the special economic zone space. And from that, I have now evolved to work more and more with some of those city projects mainly on the kind of narrative development and the regulatory and dispute resolution strategy. So that's kind of my passion. I've just listened to you speak here. We're at Zuzalu in Montenegro, which is a, a gathering, let's say, probably one of the more interesting gatherings I've been to in this space. Uh, a gathering of, of as many, uh, quite a number of people who are involved in the different arms of the free cities slash network state um, space, let's call it. Um, and you, you did a great talk, and I think it's a really relevant talk because I think it's one aspect of this whole 
um, arena that probably most people have the least experience of. I think it's easy to um, dream up a free cities project or dream up a network state idea, but most people haven't actually talked to governments before. And I know you have, so that's what I'd really like to speak about. Like maybe, maybe begin by sort of, you know, in, in a similar vein to your talk earlier, the process that that um, that your experiences showed you is is one is the best way to approach this kind of stuff. Uh, very happy to do so, Tim, and thank you for the compliment on the presentation. I really believe that one of the biggest mistakes of the whole movement would be to see governments as enemies. That is not the case, and we should not treat them that way. Because otherwise, you immediately enter into a very hostile attitude to each other. And the perspective that I'm coming from is one of saying most governments, with all their weaknesses, do intend to do good for their people, for their countries. They are interested in creating jobs. They are interested in creating opportunities. And they are interested in, give, in making the best of the countries. Now we can have a long, long discussion about whether that always works and to what extent it works. But I love starting from that positive approach. And instead of asking uh, myself, you know, how can I fight those governments? As unfortunately many people still tend towards in this city space. The question I'm asking is, how can those free cities or international cities, whatever you want to call them, how can those cities actually contribute to the development of the host country. And when I say contribute, it's from an economic perspective, yes, but also from a cultural perspective. I personally am convinced that those cities are a great opportunity for countries to attract talent, to get new impulses economically, but as much on the arts, on the sciences, and to really benefit from it. And at the same time, I also believe those, that the cities will only work if governments don't just accept them because they are somehow forced to it, but if they actually desire them. So the objective of all of us in this space needs to be to think about models that make the cities or the special economic zones, however we want to refer to them, as desirable to government as possible. And that's then giving us the solution space within which we can find uh, approaches that work for the governments and that work for what we are trying to achieve. And, you know, on that I'm not trying to hide that this is difficult. Yes, it is difficult. And I do think governments deserve for us to be honest, to say we are trying to do something very, very ambitious. We are trying to do something that very likely doesn't fit into your standard political models. But we are honest to you about it. We're putting the cards on the table and we have a lot in to contri contribute in terms of upside. And that's opening the discussion in a very, very different way than if you're just trying to basically ram something down their throat. So according to you then, when you're looking for you know, the, the primary characteristics that are going to entice governments, that mm -hmm. are going to be interested in, what, what would you say they are? I am trying to convey three things or follow a strategy of three components. First, 
really emphasize the upside for the host nation. The second is emphasize familiarity and reduce uncertainty, reduce misunderstandings. And the third component in those conversations is to actually jointly work on solutions that work for both sides. Yes, there are red lines and there should be red lines, but there are also areas where it's easier to compromise. And there are probably areas that are super important for certain governments where we just say, yeah, that's fine with us. So keep that open. So that's the three things really. Emphasize the upside, reduce uncertainty, create familiarity, and find compromises that work for all sides. And then at the end of the day, we might have an overlap or this famous, famous quote unquote meeting of minds or not. And then that's also fine. This is not for everyone. Can you give me some real life examples of those three things in, in projects you've worked on prior to this? Absolutely. Let me start uh, with the emphasizing the upside element. This is typically one of the first questions anyone asks, and very fairly so. What is in it for my country? Why should I do this? Why should I give you land? You know, Why should I trust you at the end of the day? That's the question that's being asked, and a very fair question. We typically start with the economic upside. And we are really putting an emphasis, I'm recommending that to all of the projects I'm working with, to invest some money into doing an economic impact assessment early on. The direct effects, but also those indirect and induced effects. What, you know, how many jobs, what kind of jobs. And also to really think as a project about what are you actually doing for the country, to kind of paraphrase a very famous uh, quote here. And if you go in with that, but also go into the conversations and show them from a communications perspective, from a soft power perspective, how they will benefit from such a project, you're way better prepared to answer this question of what is in it for us. If you get that question and the first thing is like, uh, uh, um, 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 yeah, it's good for you, you're out of the room before you have even started. So that's probably... It sounds like a very obvious learning, doesn't it? But especially in an environment where many people are, you know, extremely enthusiastic about it, uh, there is a big risk that it's, that the advantages seem so obvious to you that you're not even expecting anyone to even just ask about it. And then when you're hit by that question, you're like, oops, what do I say now? So that's a very practical example from a multitude of conversations I've had with governments on behalf of various projects or years. The next part uh, is about familiarity or reducing uncertainty. And, you know, I think it's true for all of us. Human nature tries to interpret things against things that we already know, that we already understand. We try to categorize it. This is our way of coping with the complexity of the world. So we are trying, and I just did that uh, with one of the projects I'm working for via the Metis Institute, we're trying to explain the logic of it and break it down to something familiar. For example, uh, explaining to governments, and not just as a story, but it's actually true, that those cities are the logical next evolution of special economic zones that started in logistics, went into manufacturing, went into services, and now are going into integrated lifestyle. And then... When you place it this way, and then you, you show to governments 
examples of special economic zones, or they might have already experienced this themselves, it's suddenly much more tangible. There's a reference model. The same for some governance, it works to speak about special autonomous regions as a reference examples. So you have those elements. Within the European Union, to give another example, and a very, very difficult discussion at the moment, people tend to say, you can't just do anything in the European Union. Well, is that actually true? And if you disperse over some myth, some myth, okay, you probably can't do a full autonomy model, fair enough, but there are things that are feasible. And if you then go into those government negotiations well-prepared, right, and when the answer comes, oh, we are part of the European Union, we can't do anything, you say, wait a moment, here, look at this uh, legal paper that we had commissioned. There is actually a lot of things you can do. And immediately you see the eyes lighting up saying, oh, let's have the conversation. And that kind of takes me to the third point um, in terms of examples. And this is uh, with a government actually in uh, Africa at this stage, uh, where if you go there and tell them, you know, we want to have full legal autonomy, they'll be just like, forget it. And in a way, frankly, I understand that. You know, if I had this bunch of people walking into my office in my country and to tell me, we can't really promise you exactly what we're going to do, but first give us full autonomy. I would be like, who are you? But if you then start breaking the question of legal autonomy down into sub-elements, you know, the procedural and substantive, if you make the distinction between constitutional, uh, cont private, contractual, uh, criminal, administrative, and then look into each of those areas and work with the civil servants, co-create solutions with them, you're suddenly getting a way more constructive approach. Now, I'm not claiming, unfortunately, that this is leading to success. I'm also not claiming that this is a fast uh, process, but we're doing something so big, so substantial, that I do think it's worth investing that time, investing that effort, but at the same time, like I guess in every negotiations, you also need to know your red lines where you just say, okay, it just doesn't work. We we stay good friends, we stay in contact, no bridges burned, but this is the wrong place. Talking of places then, talk to me about the landscape of the planet currently and where are the most exciting regions, places, you know, according to you. That's... Uh, really tough question, even though it sounds like a very simple one at the outset. The the easy answer would be look at, for example, the Middle East, look at Africa, look at some of the Southeast Asian countries, and also look at the Caribbean and uh, Central America in particular. Those, and I think most people here at the conference would agree that that's kind of the primary belt of interest. Now, if it's that straightforward, why do you hear me hesitate? I personally think that there is enormous opportunity also in areas that we're all not even really thinking of at this stage. Uh, on one hand side, overlooked areas like Central Asia. There are enormous challenges still there, but those countries have gone through enormous transitions since the Soviet Union broke up. 
And with all their shortcomings and everything, there is ambition there. Another example is there is in a way a commonly accepted knowledge that you do not even need to talk about such zones, even less to cities within Europe or the United States. I think that's wrong. I really think that's wrong. It's not going to happen tomorrow, but Europe, the United States are all looking into, you know, that next wave of economic growth, of renewal. Maybe the pain point isn't strong enough yet. I would argue it should be strong enough and it is strong enough, but we're going to see that. And we are already starting to see interest, especially from some of what's referred to as the least development, least developed regions, even within the European Union. And shouldn't we look at this? Wouldn't it be exciting to establish some of the models also in those countries? Or we had an earlier presentation here by uh, Joe McKinney and Katawa, right? Indian reservations in the United States. Isn't that a fascinating opportunity? So that's why my approach to it is, yes, for the kind of more purist models that go very, very strong on the autonomy side, maybe Africa, some parts in the Middle East and so on, some parts of Southeast Asia are the perfect location. But I'm personally also intrigued by looking into what is possible, for example, in Europe. Well, we've got to talk about that then, because I think talking to people in the, you know, in this world and when you come to the subject of of Europe, most people go, ah, EU, you know, tax incentives. Yeah, EU doesn't like that, you know, or, um, you know, special jurisdictions. Mm, no, they don't like that. Um, so how can you be optimistic about um, anyone either already in the EU or another problem, people who want to be in the EU, which is, I, I think, the case maybe here in Montenegro where we are. There is opportunity here, but I think, in a way, quite rightly so, most of the governments want to be in the EU because they are promised instantly large amounts of wealth uh, to, to invest in their country. Uh, yes, but that wealth needs to come from somewhere. Also, the transfer payments need to come from somewhere. And even I'm Austrian, right? Even Austria, Germany and so on are unfortunately not as strong and innovative economically as as we sometimes believe we are and as we ought to be. So maybe I'm wrong. I hope I'm not. And I'm always an optimist. But I really hope that the one thing that has really pushed Europe, its ability to innovate, right, to read the signs of time will once again prove true once the pressure, once the pain is high enough. The one thing I hope, however, is, you know, that we come to that level in Europe before really bad developments take place. I heard this once already here, since we've been here, this idea that USA innovates and EU regulates. <laughs> it's quite a powerful meme. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's, there's a lot of truth in it. Yeah, there is. But also within the European Union, you know, you have such a range of countries. And if you're talking with some governments um, in, in the Baltic republics, for example, right, or in Southern Europe, Greece, right, now there you have a willingness to 
think about alternative models. Now, what you hear very quickly is, oh, we would love to do that, but it's Brussels and Brussels can't do it. And then when you go to Brussels and you talk with commission people, and I'm talking with a number of them, right? They say, well, what do you mean you can't do that? Of course, I mean, there are certain rules, fair enough, but you can do a lot of things. So what we need to break without making this too much of a European Union-specific talk, right? But what we need to break is this conundrum of the member states saying, we'd love to do it, but we can't because of Brussels. And Brussels saying, well, we are fine with it, but the member states are not doing it, so what can we do? So talk, can you talk a little bit about your specific role in, in these kind of negotiations then? At what point do you become involved in, in these projects? So... I tend to get involved uh, very early on in the projects because this kind of political and regulatory narrative really needs to be woven into the projects from the outset. Um, I'm doing that either uh, while my role at the METIS Institute, which is focusing on regulatory systems and dispute resolution systems, but I'm also individually involved in a number of projects such as Titus Cables, Tipolis, or also a couple of others like uh, Praxis. Now, the strong belief here is also, and that's why I said earlier, I look at myself as an economic development specialist at the over overlap between business, politics, and law. You can't just look at those in a separated way. And that's why the most powerful is to think about the kind of political narrative, the regulatory narrative as part of the overall strategy as it is developed, and then uh, go with the project over time. My preference is to not just fly in, fly out, and uh, see a few smart words, and then just hope that something sticks, but to really work with projects throughout their life cycle. Now, of course, those projects in the city space are still all quite at the early stage <clears throat> and I have the special joy in the true sense of the word that yes it is a very specific niche but I get to work with quite a lot of different city development projects which in a way are competitors but they're also collaborators especially on this kind of political uh, side so that's a very interesting balance to uh, manage but I'm also involved um, on a couple of special economic zone or next generation special economic zone projects that are either at a more advanced stage of setup or very interestingly where we are now saying okay they've been around for 15 20 30 years what's the next wave where are they going what will they stand for in 10 15 years T talking of the the next wave of those projects it appears, correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the big next waves is, is moving special economic zones into places where people live. Is, is, that, is, that a, is that one of the big steps that you're talking about? Yes. I am personally convinced that what we're seeing is, I'm referring to it as integrated zones or lifestyle zones, where you have business and residential functions uh, combined and interwoven. The other word that we have used for that for thousands of years is cities. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in a way, you know, we're always talking about this great innovation, but I mean, this is one of the oldest things, you know, it's been around for thousands of years. People have gathered to live and work together in one form 
or the other. So yes, we're in one of the most innovative industries here, and we are in one of the oldest industries at the same time. And in a way, that artificial split is, I think, coming to an end. But from a political and regulatory perspective, this increases complexity by a multiple. To give you just an example, and I used to be an executive director at the Dubai International Financial Center for the Dispute Resolution Authority. The IFC is often looked at and referred to as an example of an autonomous legal regime. And that is true. And a lot of innovation has happened in the IFC and has really shown the world what can be done. And I think all of us that have been involved in DIFC in one way or the other are rightly proud of it. But at the same time, DIFC has not had to look at things like healthcare provision, education. DIFC does not have any criminal jurisdiction, any of those areas that are very, very emotional in a way. One of the obstacles to to these kind of special zones evolving as you say i think is um attracting people is like the biggest issue is getting people to stay i would imagine we was we had a brief discussion about this just on our way up here but i i, I think i'd like to talk more about it is it's this idea that um when you create these zones and expect people to live there you need people to stay for a reason. That could be a financial incentive. That could be an ideological incentive. It could be a number of things. Otherwise, you end up with kind of zones where people invest, have a house, uh, come once or twice a year, and there's there's no heart and soul to this place. And it's mm. more like a gated community or something. Can you speak a little bit to that and the, str- yeah. the best strategies for that? Um, I think if I had the perfect solution for this... Um, then I would really have found the Holy Grail. Right. Um, There is one paradoxon that we're all facing. And you've probably, just looking at the conference we are at the moment, most of the people here are digital nomads in in some form or sort, very few of them with families. This makes this crowd here, extremely interesting for, call it advanced economic zones, call it cities, whatever you want to call it. Those are people that are relatively easy to incentivize to come. But this very, very characteristic, the high degree of mobility is what makes this group so difficult to build a new city based on them. Because their very nature is that they will, after some while, move on to the next exciting place. That's what they love. That's what they experience. That's what they want to do. So what we all need to think about is, yes, it's great to get that group to really initiate development, to really get the city going. But then you need to address a way less flexible target group. And that's actually not a bad characteristic because if you get them to come to your city or to live and work in your city, then you really have a population that you can build upon. And in there, that's then, you know, people like like myself, frankly. Um, I consider myself a nomad 
probably five, 10 years ago, but I now have three small children that are about to start school. One is already in school. Well, suddenly, you know, you're optimizing for very different parameters than when my wife, then still girlfriend and I initially moved in that case to Bahrain in 2004. So the big intellectual challenge that we have, and by the way, that also established it is like, for example, Dubai have and are still addressing is, how do you not only address this funky crowd that you want to have, you know, that's very much Instagrammable and everything. Yes, you want them. But how do you address the people with families? How do you address the people that have ties to another place? And how do you give them economic opportunity, but also lifestyle opportunity? And what I like to refer to as rooting opportunity, so that this place becomes not just a holiday home for a month or two, if they can afford it, but a real home. And the other aspect that we must not overlook is, and I had that discussion with Tito Skevel of Tipolis in international cities. Yes, international city already says it. We want to address and attract people internationally. But typically in the host country, you already have a significant population. They are already there. Wouldn't it make sense to also think about how you're attractive to those people? Which at the same time also makes it much more interesting for governments to give them a restarted, right? Because suddenly this is not a bunch of jobs that are kind of isolated from the rest of the economy, but it's opportunity for their home population. Hmm. I mean, I, I, I found that exact problem myself. I'm this, in, the, in the, almost the same boat as you. I have three young children, <clears throat> all under 10, and we have just recently spent a year traveling around Central America. And when it, I was looking for a place to settle, it, it was, it was our, our particular travels were, were induced by the, by the pandemic and seeing my government doing things that I wasn't too happy with. So we thought, let's get out there and have a look. Now, when it came down to it, um, myself, I was like, I could, we're talking about El Salvador, one mm -hmm. place we, we, we really loved. And a fascinating place. Yes, which is now attracting proper pe families. <laughs> it really is. Ex, uh, expatriates from America, former yeah. residents of and, and nationals of El Salvador, all going back. And I was prepared to, to take a risk there and go for it. I felt so good about it. Unfortunately, my partner felt different ties to me. And I think there, 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 there may even be a, a sort of male-female divide there, which is, is real. I think men do tend to leave home and, and not come back. And women often tend to sort of stay a little bit closer to home, or, or, you know, in, in generally speaking. But that was, my, that was my experience. And so I know that it's not going to happen. But then if I look at the reasons why we well, you stayed where we were, it's really the friendship groups and the familiarity. So it's almost like that's what, that's what I would have needed to address, the familiarity. Say, for some reason, all our friends moved over there. That solves the familiarity problem. That would have worked. As far as the cultural familiarity, yeah, kind of. I mean, you've got to be invested in, in, in trying something new. It's true. But you do find cultural familiarity as well. But, but maybe that's the thing. Or, like you say, you, you, you look for somewhere within your own 
nation. Obviously, I'm not going to find that in mid Wales or, or Wales <laughs> anywhere in Wales. But well, who knows? <laughs> well, yeah, it'd be lo- yeah, it'd be lovely. In a way, there are two reactions that I have to that. Uh, the first one is we need to be very conscious that what we are doing here is not just another real estate development project. It's a community development project. And we must not think of it as a real estate development project, even if a lot of the business case reads awfully like a real estate development project. It's a community development project and attracting that initial membership is important. And I have mentioned um, Tipolis uh, as an example. I would like to mention a different example where I'm working as an advisor, and that's Praxis, who are emphasizing that duality of community creation while in parallel looking at a potential location for the city. And I think that's a very important uh, element uh, in there. That's one reaction to what you just said. The other reaction is a comment slightly more on a macro level. What I am seeing in negotiations and with all the projects that I'm working in one way or the other is that in a way you have to make a trade-off. And I'm overly generalizing now, so I'm sure there's some countries that would say, no, no, that's not true. But by and large, the trade-off I'm seeing is you get some countries that are prepared to give a lot of autonomy, give a lot of, quote-unquote, concessions, but they tend to be relatively remote or less attractive for some reason. And you have other countries that people would love to to move to, Italy as an example, or wherever, right? But it's unlikely that you get that level of concession that you get offered by some more remote countries. And so I think what we will see evolving over time is a situation where there are different offerings for people based on their preferences. There will be some cities or advanced economic zones, whatever you want to call them, that offer an extremely attract, competitive, attractive system, but require you to move to a more remote location, a location that's probably less familiar to you. And there will be other cities that, frankly, are just gradually better than what you're getting at your current location, but they are at the location where you say, look, I would not hesitate for a moment to take my family out of, to use a stereotype, old Welsh, please bear with me, out of rainy Wales to a nice sunny Mediterranean destination. I'm not offended. And Wales is rainy. <laughs> we all admit that. <laughs> I did spend some time at university in Wales, so <laughs> I know oh, the did place. You? Yes, I did. Cardiff? Uh, no, University of Wales, Swansea. Oh, really? In the Erasmus program when the UK was still part of the European Union. Right. Yeah, I'll just stop there. <laughs> Good surfing around uh, Swansea. I, best beaches in Wales, possibly, as well. I went there for purely academic reasons, of course. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, but... No cultural <laughs> reasons. <laughs> um, but it is this trade-off, and we all speak about, we want to give people a choice where to move and for some people the right choice is to move further both in terms of geographical distance and cultural familiarity and get an amazing package there for some people the choice will be you know to stay pretty much a bit more in their comfort zone 
and say, okay, I'm not getting the full package, but I'm getting more familiarity. And what I'm really hoping for in a way is for some, they will say, I actually love to stay where I am, but maybe this city development movement, if I may call it this way, will generate ideas that will then be picked up by city administrations around the world. Hmm. I told you I'm an optimist. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, no. I mean, my only obviously, my only obvious pushback on that would be that this model requires the ability to travel freely. And as we've all seen recently, that that's something that can be curbed at very short notice and to, to, to the surprise of many. Um, in a what they would call an emergency, but also the growing um, trend to see energy usage as a bad thing yeah. will also work against that unless we can advance techn technologically sound ways of travel that don't fall under those parameters. So, what, what do you think about that? Have you got any? Are you still optimistic about that that side of the future? I am. My wife's always joking, if I lose optimism, then it's getting really bad. <laughs> um, that said, there is a difference between being an optimist and being blind to reality. And I think the last three years have demonstrated to all of us how quickly freedoms that we're all absolutely used to can be curbed in an incredibly massive way. For the city movement, that means I'm already seeing that in discussions, that we're talking about things suddenly as factors that we just considered a given just three years ago that would not have been a topic, move across boundaries and things like that. Um, at the same time, it has also created awareness among many people how quickly they can be locked into their places and cannot just you know cross borders whenever they want and so it has triggered the que question marks in many people's mind of you know if i'm getting locked in somewhere where do i actually want to get locked in mm. if i may put it that way and with respect to green development i think this is one of the biggest challenges we're all facing and the cities or zones actually offer an opportunity to hopefully not just repeat the old mistakes, but to really create solutions that allow for development, that allow for mobility. Because I do believe there is a value in mobility, that allow for mobility without mobility suddenly being the opposite of environmental responsibility. I mean, <clears throat> it's, it's easy to imagine a world in the not too distant future where your carbon footprint is leveraged against you. Um, I, I think, I think a lot of people are probably already thinking that that's an inevitability. Do you do you see any way that the free cities movement can help to at least mitigate the outcomes of of that kind of world? I think it needs to go beyond just mitigating the outcomes. The free cities movement should really take a pioneer role in showcasing new models of living together, new uh, models of working together, also new models of mobility. And 
I have to say at conferences like this, what I really, really love is that I'm not just talking with, you know, the kind of people who have roughly the same background like myself, but here you have people from all kinds of areas. And if we're able to bring together those different specializations, different lines of thought, right, and really apply that in the new city model, we could become not just okay, but we could become real lighthouses of environmental responsibility. And I think we expect that of ourselves. It's not, we shouldn't just do it because somebody asks it of us. We have a responsibility and we need to embrace that responsibility. But say, for example, you, are, are, are you saying that you could potentially be living in a jurisdiction that didn't place a carbon tax on you, for example, a carbon score on you, for example? And in that case, that would mean in a kind of, say, in the model of the kind of Hanseatic League, say there, there were a group of projects from which you could travel to and from under different regulatory principles or different laws or or do you mean just you know um free cities should go hard on on green technology which it appears they already are anyway so that's not even too much of a problem so i am actually referring more to the second to the letter i believe on this here if we were only you know to create some system to circumvent those rules we'd be missing the point this is just such a fundamental challenge that we're all facing together that the question that we need to ask is how can we do our part and hopefully do more than our part without sacrificing individual freedom and again we we don't have (laughs) i don't have the answer for you but just listening to the discussions today listening to some of the conversations i had over lunch today and so on i'm actually again optimistic that's the word that keeps coming back that by just looking at things in a new way right we will come up with solutions that show new paths and the fascinating thing is we're doing new cities anyway where if not here should we start Mm. something that that i've 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 appreciated this conference is the way a number of people have been framing the kind of different sections of this movement and in particular the kind of uh the online version of i mean in in a way it's a it's a it's an observation of the way these communities are established and the two the two distinct varieties are the um online versus the real life and the ideological say versus the um the free, I don't know, the, the business model, let's say. And I think that they're all very relevant. Uh, it's almost, I, I think myself, I, I, I think I've concluded that um, for longevity, you need uh, a, a shared belief in something. Otherwise, like as we said earlier, you, you end up with these hollow, pretty hollow places with lovely buildings, but nobody in them much. Um, and we've just come from Montelibro, which is uh, a sort of Russian expat community here, which has am- amassed its population of about 300, simply because they're all libertarians and, and they're all mainly Russians. And now it's manifesting in in real life. They're building buildings, they bought land, et cetera, et cetera. It's an intent, the intentional community side. And I, I like that. And I, I think this trip has taught me how important... <laughs> That is, 
the 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 models like Titus's model is 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 great and it makes a lot of sense. But I think in the beginning at this stage, you need a reason for people to go, and that's where the the kind of the cities uh, the the um, the network states, these people are f- focused on creating their state, creating their network, and then in making it in real life. I'm, I'm more of a kind of bring the community together first in real life and then start building. I don't know, what, what's your opinion on, on all these different sort of ideas flying around at the moment? I like that kind of two-by-two two matrix that you referred to at the beginning. Yes. We're sometimes, speaking of purists, versus pragmatists which is kind of the same i think that you had and then you had real world and online yes um and i just asked myself why i was listening to you where would i see myself i'm probably in that corner that is pragmatic and real world yes me too um but and this is an important but you need the purists especially early on to really get the impulses get that you know ideological enthusiasm that really drives innovation, that drives thinking about things in a way that pragmatists would say, oh, wait a moment, that's just too difficult, that's just not worth it. So you need, and I really enjoy it, and I see that a number of projects that I'm involved in, we we get that tension between the purist camp and the pragmatic camp. And that can get very, very agitated. But without having both, this movement wouldn't be a movement. It would be at standstill. Most certainly you need the innovators and then the preservers. And that's often, I mean, more than often, uh, a political stance as well. The the people who are, the, 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 the move fast and break things people are very good at, at coming up with ideas. And the, the slow down and maintain people are, are good at, 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 you know keeping them going in the real world i wouldn't even say it's slow down and maintain it's um because i don't see myself as a slow down and maintain person it's really about you know the degree to what extent you're willing to compromise and the degree to which you're willing to accept current realities and i'm personally a big fan of napoleon hill um who um who basically said as part of his principles of success, whatever the mind can imagine, it can achieve. And I really believe that this is right. Whatever the mind can imagine, it can achieve. But he also goes on to say, you know, nothing comes from nothing. If you just have a great idea, a great mind, but you're then not putting in hard work, planning, and all those elements, those ideas will stay just that, ideas. So yes, whatever the mind can Imagine it can achieve, but then nothing comes from nothing. It takes hard and systematic work to really move those great imaginations to real life. What it takes, however, to do that is passion. That passion to really say, yes, I'm burning to see this idea happen. And I think that's what's really uniting the purist camp, if I may call it that way, and the pragmatic camp. We all have a passion to really create opportunity, to create freedom that can be used to do things, to inspire things, to create opportunity. Since you're talking about ideas, what's the best idea you've heard recently in this in this space? 
that that idea that you you were like wow that someone has brought a number of things together there and they make absolute sense my spontaneous answer very much influenced by today was actually the presentation we had here on uh the sovereign indian nations and what is and is actually already being done there can you go into that a little Absolutely. Although, I mean, there are better sure. people here, and yeah, I think but, but, but you can't but, start it. <laughs> but, like fa- but what I was just fascinated, right, uh, to understand, it, you know, this whole concept of sovereign Indian nations and how they, some of them, and I think I'm mispronouncing them, not Katawas, are using that concept, right, to create at this stage an economic zone using that degree of sovereign rights that they have had for centuries in a new and modern interpretation, but doing that in a constructive and consensual way. And that just is an amazing example of how, as if I may go back to Napoleon Hill that we just mentioned, right? What the mind can imagine, can achieve, yes. They, they imagined how they can use what they have to really create those new zones and hopefully eventually cities. And then they got going. They started working on it. They didn't allow themselves to just, you know, be set back by people saying at the beginning, oh, forget it. That's not never going to happen. But they stuck with it. And now we're at the stage where they have started passing some of the codes where we learned that they have passed their own banking code. So for me, I'm fascinated by that example. Why am I fascinated? Because it shows that this is not just blue sky thinking, but that it is absolutely happening so that's kind of the pragmatic answer the other absolutely fascinating idea that i've had is about free cities in space and you know that's the kind of discussions that at this stage it was more a discussion or after probably a drink or two let's put it this way yesterday night but who's who says that this will still be that in a couple of years you know it's often these kind of inspiring discussions that start new ways. And if I'm thinking of I'm living in Dubai and Dubai with the Mohammed bin Rashid Space Center have a project about a city on Mars in 2217, I think it is. So in about 100 years time. Now that's far out. I'm afraid we'll not, the two of us will not make that, but who knows? But it sounds strange at this stage. It sounds weird at this stage. But then I'm listening to my seven-year-old. And you know how excited he is about envisioning what a city on Mars could look like. In his case, probably still within his lifetime. And that's when you realize, hey, cool. We might be starting and seeding something here which goes way beyond our generation. And isn't that cool? It is very cool. And it's, it's, it's more, um, I think it's a it's much more pragmatic solution than, than people give it. And simply because um, space is the n- newest frontier that we know of. And if you look back historically, the you know, why did people create new societies in the past? It was always frontiers that they went yeah. to. And we've pretty much run out of frontiers. Short of underwater, far out at sea, we have no frontiers left. 
it makes total sense to me that space would be the next frontier. And now we've got, I mean, you know, the private sector is 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 racing towards space now. Yeah. And yes. and that's good because we know they'll do it much quicker than the state would have done. <laughs> and, you know, in, in a way, again, yes, it's super innovative and everything, but it's, you know, what explorers have done for ages. Yes. Uh, it was the people setting into sea out of Portugal, right, still worried that they might drop off the cliff of Earth, yes. but they still went and they discovered all those new continents and countries. And in a way, that's what's so fascinating about human nature. And this is where the optimist comes in. Unfortunately, yes, sometimes we're using human nature and this spirit of discovery for very, very bad things. But it also allows us to really venture into new dimensions. Mm. I've often wondered whether we as a, as a species have lost this urge to search for new frontiers because we, we have run out of them. It's not, it's, you don't, you're not born in society now thinking, I could make it somewhere new because and the reason i say that is because i i was and as you probably did lived in the analog world before any of yep. this stuff and when we traveled in the analog world it was like finding a new frontier because there wasn't a lot of information you could often find out short of a guidebook <laughs> but if you went anywhere off the beaten track there was no way of knowing what you would discover and, there and was, the guidebook was probably five years old exactly the time it. yeah and and I I now know what it's like to travel in the digital world, and it is very very different. You're never disconnected from home, even if you choose to be, even if you choose to sort of turn your phone off. You still see things that remind you of home. You know the, the homogenization of of culture, the globalization of of culture, and I I don't know. It's yeah, we live in an incredibly different world where digital nomads like you say are thinking about their year in terms of say oh, two months in El Salvador three months in Montenegro yeah. four months you know which is an astonishing change and I'm almost certain that it'll take a long time for society to actually catch up with this you know what I mean what I'm just wondering also to come back to some of the earlier points is that group exists and it's a fascinating group um, but it's still a minority group. And my hypothesis is that it will always be a minority group uh, in terms of economic means, in terms of personal preferences, but also, I don't know about yourself, but for me, having children has had quite a bit of an impact of uh, that mobility model, even though we are pushing the boundaries very much to to the point that it gets us in troubles with our kids' schools on quite frequent intervals. But I do think there are still boundaries. I do think even for classic travel on planet Earth, there is still so much to discover. What I love doing is, yes, I travel a lot for business in a in, at an incredible pace. But what I love doing is for vacation, you know, just turn off, take a backpack, take the kids and go to places, travel slower, don't have it all planned out. And in particular, don't just always basically travel to the most fascinating places and all you look at is the little screen in front of you. And then there is still so much to discover. So anybody who tells me we have run out of frontiers in the literal sense and in the 
kind of indirect sense, I'd say, wait a moment, let me challenge that. I suppose it would be easy to argue that the digital nomads of today, because it's, it's a fledgling culture, um, will grow into the families of tomorrow and they will change their preferences arguably i mean it's a generational thing this is exactly what happened to me i mean i was a i i used when i met the mother of my children i was traveling 11 10 or 11 months of the year and now i loathe the idea of getting on a plane and we live in a house with you know in the countryside and we love it and i love coming back to it so yeah. it's it's easy to imagine that that gener that might even be i mean this happens in most industries this happens in social media you know there's things you do when you're young then you move on to another thing and then you move on to you know. And at the same time, I find it absolutely fascinating that I'm now able to travel with my children, you know, take them along and see the absolute awe and inspiration and start rediscovering things with the children. So in a way, I believe that one of the best things I can give my kids is this ability to experience new culture, experience new places. Yes, like yourself, I'm not as much a nomad anymore as I used to be, but still, once you've got that in your blood, I do think it stays there. You're, you're correct. The thing I'm not fully um, sold on currently is how important it is for the children, my children currently, to travel. Uh, they're, they're under the age of 10, and we've, we've taken them to some astonishing places and some, they've had incredible experiences. And we do talk about them, but I know that my experience of those things was way more powerful and it's hard to I know it's hard to quantify but for example you know if we go anywhere if we can find a swimming pool or the sea they're happy it could be the Mexican it could be sea in Mexico it could be a swimming pool in <laughs> Spain it could be you know there are certain things that my kids just love doing and I wonder whether um, one thing that's because on the downside I know that when I know that children like to experience the same thing every morning they wake up. It's an important ritual in, the, in a young child's life is to know that, that there are some constants. And in, in our family, we've tried to make the family unit the constant because we, we have moved around a bit. But I know that it's, it can be tricky. And I think that mm. moving around too much when you have children can have a detrimental effect on them without a shadow of a doubt. Yes, I think what's working in favor of this kind of lifestyle now is online schooling. I know a lot of people who have found a high quality of education, very high quality of education online, and their movements then correspond to homeschooling communities in southern Spain or in then over to Mexico. So there are all these new subcultures evolving um, and and finding their way in this new world because it is it's a new world it's only been around for 25 years really this new digital realm yeah. you know and that's in a way where i'm again fascinated about this free city new city development because it's a movement that's open to such ideas some of the ideas will prove great others will prove a failure fair enough but there is an openness to experimenting with such kind of uh, models. 
on this cooling in particular, for example, but you are, of course, getting to the point of saying, you know, what's the purpose of school? Is it just transfer of knowledge? Then I agree with you. There is a lot of fascinating offering out there. Or is it about socialization of the children, you know, building their group of friends, also finding out how the group interaction works in a not so well-protected environment? That's a bit difficult to simulate uh, in a homeschooling environment. Unless, like I say, you realize that once again, the homeschooling movement as an online movement is manifesting in real life. And Indeed. this is when we went on our travels, we began by going to the places that we knew were homeschooling hubs. Yeah. And when you arrive there, you're welcome, you're welcomed with open arms. And there's this group on a front Monday, this group on a Tuesday, this group on a Wednesday. And it's so, you know, and which harks back to that notion that, you know, these communities that have a reason to be together may well be the ones that really stand the test of time and uh, especially when they have a solid foundation in that community before it manifests in real life like the homeschooling community um, the ones we visited were just choosing a city that they liked for a certain reason often by the beach with cheap property cheap rental rate prices that kind of thing and that's where they chose and that's where everyone went but who's to say that there there, there can't be free city projects evolve around that exact same thing absolutely and in a way if i may paraphrase what you just said right is it's once again people moving together looking for community around some shared interests let's just call it that way and that takes us back i mean this is exactly basically what has happened since what has happened for thousands of years people gathering for some sort of shared interest that interest has evolved but the principle as such is exactly the same like our ancestors thousands of years ago Absolutely. I think um, I think you've just hit the nail on the head there. Um, I've got one last question. <clears throat> um, if you had a rich benefactor, this is a hypothetical question, a very rich benefactor. Give me the name. <laughs> <laughs> who, who said, take a sabbatical on me, one year, mm -hmm. all expenses paid, what would you do with that one year? I would go on a round-the-world trip. And I would do it without a single flight on it. With your family, presumably? With my family. Wow. Do you travel by train and a lot already? Or um, Yes, I do. And I love it. Yeah. I, I, me too. I, I just, I find it, you have to be very intentional to be able to do it. Because you can't just pop on a plane and go somewhere. Yeah. And... I'm afraid it's not a thing you can do at the moment for political reasons and so on. But for example, I have taken quite extensive trips on the Trans-Siberian Railway. And those are long trips that people you meet, right? And then you stop in some villages that you have never heard of, sometimes because the train has just accidentally broken down. Fine. Those are the experiences that you can't quote-unquote curate. Those are the experiences that life's, life gives to you. And what I would really dream of is, you know, just being able to flow with that. One of the best week, set of weeks I've ever had was after university. I had a ticket into South America 
And seven weeks later, I had to return on the other side of the continent. And, you know, seven weeks, I somehow managed to get from Peru to uh, Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. Those were absolutely fascinating weeks that no, that would not have worked that way if I had had a script before. And doing that for a year, it would probably not even take that much of a super rich benefactor for that. What's your opinion on the future of rail travel in general? Do you think it's it's peaked? Do you think do you think uh, technology will will nullify it? Um, I think it will change what we consider rail travel today, but I do think that the concept has a future. Um, what I'm dreaming of is, for example, transport solutions where you have some sort of pods, for example, that then combine to a train and then on the last uh, leg, for example, uh, disassemble again and take you to your final destination. Mm. Or one idea that I kind of foster is, you know, you have your kind of personal pod that in front of your house goes on the last mile individualist solution that is probably combined to some kind of a road solution maybe even goes on a plane, right? And you're still in this kind of pot. Now, that would really change how we think about individual and collective traffic at the moment and would make that maybe more fascinating. The one thing that I'm a bit troubled by that model is because it basically cuts you off even more from those random encounters that you currently still get on planes, trains, and buses, and so on. So on one hand side, that's something I'm fascinated by as an idea. And then I'm like, do I really want that? <laughs> well look andres maybe we'll meet you next in the pods then somewhere <laughs> maybe our pods will collide you know like the, at heathrow airport they do have that system Indeed. already <laughs> i've been on one it's quite a strange experience getting into one of those things or we might be meeting each other with our families on some train somewhere in the middle of i don't know brazil or ulambato have you did you take it all the way um, we actually started in Ulaanbaatar, yes, which is strictly speaking not a Trans-Siberian but the Trans-Mongolian. I've spent a lot <laughs> of time in, in Mongolia, many for, yeah. for many years. I've been going there every year, and I'd never took the train there. I've always flown because I've always been on a bit of a time schedule. But yeah. uh, which is the mistake we're so often doing? You're always saying, you know, I'll do the train the next time, and then the next time you're still under pressure, and you never. Uh, you never do it. The the thing about trains, though, is if you fa if you think in advance and you factor the train in, they they become an asset. Because, for example, if you're even if you're on business, you can sit on a train and do business much yeah. better than you can on a plane, and there's oh, less yeah. waiting. It, you you have more time to sit. But I don't think they're set up necessarily for that well enough yet if you know what i mean that's true on the business side and sometimes you know it's also the more adventurous train journeys that are the most memorable um i have traveled through quite a bit of india on trains my, my and time, yeah. in what they refer to as standard carriage mm. um and i actually did take some of my kids they were like two and three at that age I think my own parents were thinking about whether asking some court for custodianship over my kids <laughs> <laughs> but Okay, there are limits and, of course, there is a sense of responsibility. And I think both of us have that for our families. But after all, the kids are still talking about those adventures. Yeah.
I'll never forget actually. I, I've I've spent a lot of time in India, and one time I think one of the few times I took a train. I mean, I've taken a few, but um, compared to other ways that I travelled, yeah. and it, 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 I think it was my train journey happened to fall on Holly or one of those big days. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I, I was so excited because I'd managed to actually book a seat. You know, it was I think third. I think it was probably third class as well. And when I got to the sort of near the train you could see literally people just like you know bulging out of this train and I actually did manage to find my way to to my seat and when I got there there was a little old lady sitting in it and I was thinking I can't do that so I had to you know stand for for probably 10 or 11 hours it was one of those big journeys (laughs) as well but but yeah we we always tried to get a um uh what do you call it a you know the ones with the beds in it the yeah. the sleeper sleepers beds, yeah which were really really quite enjoyable and yeah. if i was i've never traveled with my family in india but if i did they would love that that would be so exciting yeah. to four bunk beds in a carriage and you know traveling you know waking up with the you know the the trains rocking underneath you and stuff well it sounds like we're definitely sharing a passion for adventurous travel yes we are <laughs> anyway andreas I'll, I'll stop going on now <laughs> thanks for talking it's really lovely to see you and thank and you for having me for and your wonderful talk you did thank you mm-hmm.